I told him, I said, our folks are some of the most giving folks I've ever seen. I mean, really. So he went home with $4,000 gravy. And the whole project is done. And so, amen. Isn't that great? Well, you see this up here. We're going to be uh, starting this series this weekend. How many of you know you can be deceived? Anybody think you can't be deceived? No takers. All right. So spread the word and bring somebody this weekend who needs the Lord. And now how many of you are ready for Galatians? All righty. I'm not seeing it up there yet. I know it's there. There it is. Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. And we pray in Jesus' name, you will bless it. Feed us, illuminate us, guide us, and renew our minds. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Can you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him he heard that. He's going to. I'm amazed at the biblical illiteracy that is in a lot of the church. And so we're going through whole books. You're supposed to. It's called expository teaching, where you learn whole books because it's all the Word of God. It didn't say some Scripture is given by God. It says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So tonight, we're going to continue and look at the doom of false teachers. Now, last time we closed by looking at how false teaching is like leaven in a loaf of bread. Remember that? Once inserted, it spreads until the whole loaf is permeated with it. And we also showed how truth is lost to the children and grandchildren of parents that experienced revival. And that really rang a bell with a lot of people because it's true. How many of you had revival in your younger days, and now your children and grandchildren don't seem to have quite the fire you did. All right. This is what alarmed Paul about the Galatian church, the freshness and the power and the truth of God they had experienced under Paul was being lost through the leaven of false teaching, the teaching of the Judaizers. Now, Paul pulls no punches in telling them the truth. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, let me tell you about these false teachers. This persuasion does not come from him who calls you, being led away from the doctrine of grace is not coming from God. When you and I are led away from the doctrine of saved by grace through faith, it's never from God. He said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And anytime our faith is sabotaged, rest assured, that evil influence did not come from Jesus who called you. It is from the enemy of your soul. Come to rob you of your joy and faith. That's what he's after. The devil's not out to give you a flat tire or make something go bump in the night. He's out for your faith. He, he's out to really shipwreck you. Now, Next, Paul tells them of his 
confidence in their character and in their faith. He says in verse 10, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. Now, he's appealing to them. He's saying, I believe in you. But more than that, I believe in the faith that is in you. I'm sure, he says, that you won't take that final, fatal step into apostasy. Strong words going on here, folks. This is rubber meets the road kind of stuff. They have been dilly-dallying with very serious error. And so the great apostle was confident that not one of them had been truly saved or who had been truly saved would journey into the darkness of apostasy. Backsliding and apostasy are two different things. And I want you to know the difference here tonight. A backslider stumbles into sin and often becomes ensnared in some kind of a bondage. Something gets him out there and he's, he, he sinks. He drifts from God. He may be away from God for a season or he may be away for years. I've known people who are away for years. Yet the Holy Spirit never ceases to convict him and the Father chastens him. How many of you have ever slid just a little bit? Tell the truth. Oh, you good grief. We got a sinning church here tonight. Wow. I am. All right. Have you ever noticed that the Holy Spirit never left you alone? Stayed with you. As much as he can give you peace, he can make you miserable. And the Father can take you to the woodshed like no one else. But guess what? He never disowns the backslider. Now, all of you who were taught otherwise were taught wrong. As the prodigal son was ever, ever still the father's son, so is the backslider. The father never said to the prodigal, all right, I'm done with you. I disown you. He didn't do that. He waited for him to come home. And when he came home, he welcomed him as his what? Son. But the apostate is different. The apostate is one who, having been enlightened to the truth, repudiates it, turns away from it, denounces Christ, and embraces some kind of an error. Apostasy. It's my understanding of Scripture, this person was never saved. He was close. Hebrews says that they are those who have once been enlightened. Look at that description. They've once been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. And they have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming of age. The coming age. Now you say, well, that sounds like somebody saved me. But no, people all the time come to church services and hear the truth of the Word. During worship, they're very aware of the presence of God. Maybe not like you and me, but they see Him moving. They see miracles performed by Him. They are aware of the reality of Christ. They have a taste of it. They're not fully in, but they have a taste of it. And seeing those things, 
they taste the goodness of God. But these same people never truly come to Christ. They're on the outside looking in. They're on the periphery. But they never step over into Jesus be my Lord and Savior. They never get saved. Churches are full of them every week. Billy Graham said the greatest harvest field in the world is the church. These same people never come to Christ. Later, they apostatize from the truth and they embrace error. Remember, Jesus said on the day of judgment, many would say to him, read it with me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? That sounds like somebody saved me. And then what does Jesus say to them? Let's read it together. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice. Wait a minute. These people were doing miracles in his name, but living lawless lives. Wow. Now that'll humble you, won't it? They, they, they knew the power of his name. They knew the reality of Christ. But they lived lawless lives. So they had never been saved. So there you have it. These individuals were no strangers to his power, his presence, and the authority in his name. Yet they never knew him. This is the kind of person Hebrews is pointing to. Only these can truly apostatize. Backsliding and apostasy, two different things. It's quiet in here tonight. That's why the Bible says, examine yourself, that you be in the faith. Make sure you're saved. Now, back to the Galatians. Paul is confident that not a one of his genuine children in the faith would follow through into total apostasy. And he says of the Judaizers trying to take them away, I love this verse 10. I tell you, I like Paul. He was tough. Paul was a man. Now, look at how he's going to talk to them. He who troubles you, who's teaching you this false doctrine, is going to bear his judgment, whoever he is. You know what, church? It is serious business to cause somebody to stumble. Oh, yes, it is. Jesus said better for you than you have a millstone tied around your neck and you be thrown into the depths of the sea than you make one of these little ones to stumble, not as a child, but somebody young in the faith, especially if you intentionally sabotage their faith with false teaching. The Judaizers' judgment was certain. Paul was a firm believer in God's holding men accountable for their actions and what you sow, you will reap. We're talking about that verse this weekend. Now, next, Paul uncovers one of the lies the Judaizers had spread about him, that he still preached circumcision, that he also still had one foot in Judaism and the other in Christianity. They were spreading these kind of lies. Say, oh, Paul teaches what we do. He, he's teaching the same thing we're telling you. And man, that just infuriated 
the Apostle Paul with righteous indignation. And look what he says in verse 11. I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I suffering persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. This was a bald-faced lie. He says, look, if I'm still preaching circumcision, then why in the world am I being persecuted? Because you know as well as I do that if I was preaching circumcision, I wouldn't be getting persecuted. But I'm getting persecuted because of the offense of the cross. You know, that cross, anytime you preach it, teach it, share it, it's either going to get them saved or it's going to offend them. The offense of the cross. He said, I'm preaching the, preaching the cross. And because of that, I am persecuted day and night and night and day. And my life is in jeopardy every hour because of the cross. He said, they're lying to you about me. I'm not preaching circumcision. Now, next, Paul expresses his righteous indignation over the whole Judaizing mess by saying, verse 12, I want you all to read this with me because here is where he really gets real. Ready? I could wish they were cut off who trouble you. This phrase, cut off, is from the Greek word apokopto, apokopto, and it means to emasculate, to castrate, to mutilate, to amputate. Everybody say, ooh. <laughs> now he's getting real, but that's what it means. I can't tell you something the word doesn't mean. Apokopto, that's what it means. He is not wishing a good thing on these men. It's the same word used of cutting off the servant's ear by Simon Peter. He pulled out that sword and cut off that servant's ear. Same word, apocopto. The Judaizers wanted Paul's converts to be circumcised, to submit to a minor amputation to enhance their religious standing. Scornfully, Paul says, what they need to do is go all the way and make eunuchs of themselves. Put another way, I hope the knife slips. <laughs> I'm just telling you what it says. There's no way the Apostle Paul said that. Yes, he did. It's right there. I wish you could see the faces of all the men in here when I'm teaching. In today's PC culture, Paul would be accused, oh, you know he would, of intolerance and not showing love. How could he talk that way about these poor men, these false teachers? He ought to love them. He was completely justified in saying such a thing to men who were trying to cut off the Gentile believers from their faith in Christ. He says, you want to cut them off from faith? Then I can share a word or two that I wish happened to you. Paul was fierce as a bear when defending its cubs when it came to defending his converts from cultists. Where has this kind of boldness gone? Why are we so afraid to just tell the truth? Why are we always walking on glass, always afraid of saying the wrong thing? I like this. If I had false teachers come in here among you, I would be just as fierce. Now, I don't know if I'd say that to them, but I'd think of something else to say. 
because I'm not going to let your faith be destroyed by a cult. So I would be like a she-bear protecting her cubs. It's the way we should be. I'm not going to say to them, oh, come on in, let's blend. Can't we all just get along? Do you see that here? He couldn't do that. There's a time when you've got to call a spade a spade, a snake a snake, wrong, wrong, and right, right. Now, so far we've seen the foundation of our liberty and the foes of our liberty, but next Paul discusses the frontiers of our liberty. If we've learned anything in Galatians, it is that we are what in Christ? Free. Can you say it good and loud? Free. And also that the law has no claim on us as it relates to our righteousness. You don't get righteous by the law. No way. It's only by grace, through faith, in the finished work of Christ that we ever are declared righteous by God. That's it. It comes by faith alone. Yet free as we are, we cannot do certain things because of love. I want you to pause with me a minute and think. We don't live by the law. We live by grace. But love for the Lord will make us draw the line at certain things. Not just our love for the Lord, but our love for each other. There are certain things you shouldn't do because of the person sitting next to you. You may be able to, but you shouldn't. Now, let me give you an example. I, I will not drink. I don't drink. Don't drink a drop. Never. Now, many reasons. Me and alcohol don't mix. I don't need it. I don't want it. I love having my mind, my thoughts clear. But also, we have a lot of people in our church that struggle with alcohol. And I want them to be able to come up to me and say, hey, pastor, do you ever drink? I don't want to have to say, well, yeah, you know, every once in a while, because then they'll go, well, if he can't, I So the law of love says, don't do it. I want you to know you don't need it. You don't need it. That's just my stand. You don't need it for any reason. I personally believe every sip you take is a sip towards a bad decision. Bad decisions increase with every sip. Okay, enough of that. Because you're looking at me like, oh, man, I didn't come for this tonight. All right, our love for others will ensure that other things are equally impossible. This is what we mean by using the word frontiers. Frontiers have parameters, lines in the sand. We're not free to cross certain frontiers. For instance, we're not free to indulge in carnality. Look what he says in verse 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I had somebody say to me one time with a straight face uh, who was living in sexual sin, and they said this to me, but the Bible says, Pastor Jeff, that to the pure, all things are pure. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He was using his liberty for an occasion to the flesh, and so let me remind us here, we have not been set free to sin. 
we are set free from sin. All right? We are no longer dead in sin, thank God. We are dead to sin. That's good stuff. We can pause and see law on that one the rest of the night. I want you to know, Jesus didn't save you so you can have liberty to go do what you want. He saved you so you can have the power to do what you should. To abuse our freedom to indulge the flesh would not be liberty, but license. Now, now that we are free in Christ, we should operate in love by serving others. Read verse 14 with me. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. The whole law they were so zealous to want to keep was fulfilled in one word, love. If you love, you will fulfill the law. So, says Paul, if you want to keep the law, there it is, love each other. And if you love each other, you won't break the law. Not only are we not free to indulge the flesh, but we're also not free to indulge in conflict, which churches are very, very known for. Look what he said in verse 15. He's talking about Christian cannibalism. That's right. Look at verse 15 and read it with me. If this isn't cannibalism, I don't know what is. You're eating people. Isn't that what it says? All right, let's read it. But if you and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed, eating each other alive. Wow. Churches can literally devour and consume one another when disunity appears. When disunity appears and there's a church fight, I have seen Christians devour one another. Have you ever noticed this about the world, particularly liberals? One of their own can do something terrible, but they will still stick with them. Have you ever noticed that? You know why the Tower of Babel had to be stopped by God? Because they were so unified that the only thing that could stop them was an act of God. They were unified in a wicked endeavor. So often you will see church people who, who ought to be more unified than anybody. I mean, if the wicked can be unified in a wicked endeavor, we ought to be completely, unbreakably unified in a righteous endeavor. And yet, not much, don't take much, and we're at each other, consuming one another, slandering each other, devouring one another, eating each other alive. Churches split. Christ is not glorified. Happens all the time. We need to stick together. You do something terrible, I take you under my wing and say, have you repented? Yes. I forgive you too. I'm with you. I'm not going to turn on you. I'm not going to put you out to pasture because you make a mistake. I'm going to kick you out, treat you like you've got the plague, but I want to see you restored. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of Jesus. The Galatians have been fighting and quarreling with each other, likely over the keeping of the law. It is always the case that when the leaven of false doctrine is injected into a community, 
discord and disunity are at the door because it causes dissension. But good doctrine brings unity. Good teaching brings unity every time. We should never attempt to settle problems by fighting and quarreling. Let me give you a little advice. Hot heads don't bring cool-headed solutions. The best fighter is never angry. He's calculated and wise. Never angry. At the beginning of chapter 5, I said that Paul would next discuss four laws. The law of liberty in Christ. Let's read these together. Four laws that we're going to see in this. We've already seen a couple of them. The law of liberty in Christ. Law of likeness to Christ. The law of love for Christ. And the law of life in Christ. We just looked at the first one, the law of liberty. Now let's look at the law of likeness to Christ. All of Paul's letters, all of them, deal with belief followed by behavior. He said, if I give you truth, I want you to walk it out. Don't just be a hearer of the word and not a doer. But when you hear truth, it is so that you will walk it out. Do what you hear. Always principle followed by practice. That's all that Paul wrote. That's the way he wrote everything he did. Here's the principle. Here's the truth. Now walk it out, practice it, and live it. Now, the end to all his teaching is that we are to be like Jesus. He wants us to understand that God has made provision for us to be truly like Jesus. How many of you believe that? Now, those of you that are married, I wonder if I could ask, you know, the person you're married to knows more than anybody else. If you're more like Jesus than you were last year, you can ask Kathy, is Jeff more like Jesus than he was last year? Don't ask her. I'm just saying you could. Nobody knows you like the ones you live with, right? But the people we live with ought to be able to say, you know, I know them very well, and they are more like Jesus than they were last year. Because that's what God's after. He liked Jesus so much, he wants a whole bunch of little ones running around. Amen? Turn to your neighbor and tell them, you know what? God wants you to look like Jesus. Well, that was about half hard to turn to the other side and tell them the same thing. <laughs> now turn to your spouse and say, do I look more like Jesus than I used to? No fights in here. No fights. But he wants us to understand that God has provided everything we need to be like Jesus. Now, look at verse 16. I say then, this is great, so say this with me. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. How are we going to be like Jesus? Walking in the Spirit. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. I can't imagine being in this world without the Holy Ghost. We have two choices. Every one of us here tonight, we can walk in the flesh and its lusts, or we can walk in the Spirit. There is not another choice. We have only those two. If we walk in the Spirit, it will kill the flesh and its activities. God's got one solution for the flesh. Kill it. Kill it. Now, elsewhere, Paul wants us to know that the flesh is evil. 
In Romans 7, 18, he writes these words. And this is a great description of the flesh. And I know that as I read it, you can identify with this. He said, in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. Not a little bit. No good thing. Our flesh is beyond redemption. Now, what exactly is the flesh? The flesh, as Paul refers to it, is that fallen part of us that naturally gravitates to sin. It pulls, it, it is drawn, it leans toward sin. Our flesh sins as easily as we breathe. He's not saying, for instance, that our body is sinful. Now, I want you to say with me, my body is not sinful. He's not talking about your body. He's not talking about your form. He's not talking about what you see when you look in the mirror. That's not the flesh he's identifying. So your body is good because God made it and said it is good. The flesh is described by Paul like this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, meaning born of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Now here we can all identify with this. For what I am doing, I don't understand. How many of you have ever said, I can't believe, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? I know I shouldn't do this. Why am I doing this? For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing to do the right thing is present with me, but the doing of the good thing is not present with me. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I don't want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it. It is sin which dwells in me. Sounds like a schizophrenic to me. (laughs) Spiritual schizophrenia. But that's exactly what it is. I find then, here's a principle, that evil is always there in my flesh, the one who wants to do good. Folks, I want to promise you, you give your flesh half a chance, it will always do the wrong thing. Your flesh will always do the wrong thing. We must understand here that a man, a man in sin is not man as God intended him to be. Man in sin is a monstrosity. So much for I'm okay, you're okay. Now, I wouldn't change one word in that last sentence. I'm going to tell you, man in sin is a monstrosity. Just watch Forensic Files, Dateline ID, these real crime shows where you see normal people, great neighbors and people you would never expect anything from in an evil or wicked sense, and they do the most monstrous things to each other. Why? Because we need to be born again. Because man in sin is a monstrosity. In the flesh, there is nothing you won't do. Give, your ch- you give the flesh in you a chance and time, and there's nothing your flesh won't do. I'm telling you the truth about what lies within you. If it was in Paul, it's in you and me. And that's why it needs to be kilt dead. 
It needs to be killed. The flesh, watch this, has been grafted onto man by the evil one at the time of Adam's fall. God won't bless it or have dealings with it. He has put one solution for your flesh, and that's put it to death. If I, by the Spirit, do kill the deeds of the flesh, I will live. What did God do with your flesh on the cross? We were crucified with Christ. He killed it. That old man was crucified. The flesh, God gave us the Holy Spirit, that we might kill the activities of the flesh. Okay? Now, Paul tells us that the weakness of the law, why didn't the law work? Why did we have to have a Savior? Was something wrong with the law? No. The law was weak because of our flesh. Our flesh could not live out the law. The flesh could not obey God's commandments. Romans 8, 8 says, they that are in the flesh cannot, cannot please God. If you're in the flesh, you're not pleasing God. If you're living according to the dictates of the flesh, you cannot please God. Further, the carnal fleshly mind is the very enemy of God. We don't get enough of this kind of preaching. Let me tell you what. Lost people need to be told, not just that, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He does. But they need to understand that until you're saved, you're an enemy of God, a very enemy of God. We are living as enemies of God until we're saved. And he says, concerning the flesh, it is not, or the, the fleshly mind, it is not subject to the law of God, neither can it be. It needs to be born again. Now, let me show you what God meant and intended in the very beginning. God made man to be indwelt by him. We were made for God to dwell in us like oil in a lantern. The human spirit was to be the home of the Holy Spirit. In harmony with the Holy Spirit, the human spirit was to control the soul, mind, emotions, and will. Man was thus made to exhibit God in the universe. Man man was designed to be a displayer or an exhibitor of God to the universe, manifest and magnified in the human body. I really do believe that Adam and Eve glowed in the dark until the fall. I believe the Shekinah glory rested on them like a light. But look what happened in the fall. Please understand, church, the Holy Spirit departed from the spirit of men. And rather than being controlled by him, what took over? The flesh. Now, the flesh controls unsaved man. His mind, his heart, his will, and his senses are all under the sway of the flesh. This is why Jesus said, read it with me, you must be born again. Born once, you're going to hell. Born twice, you're going to heaven. Born once, you're lost. Born twice, you're saved. Born once, you're blind. Born twice, you see. Born once, you're living in the flesh. Born twice, you're in the spirit. We are all born. We're all born unplugged, spiritually unplugged, cut off from God. 
We need to be born again. If you're not born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. You'll never go. Because you've got to be born twice. Why? Because decrepit, fallen flesh cannot enter heaven. We need to be born again, born of the Spirit, born from above. When a person is born again, several miracles take place. His inner man first is cleansed by the precious blood of Christ. How many of you are thankful for that blood? In that precious blood, give the Lord a hand of praise for that. I love God for sending His Son. Thank you, Lord. But next, we become a habitation of God through the Spirit. God doesn't live in this building. God lives in you. This building is just brick and stone and wood, carpet, steel. The only reason you sense God in here is because He's coming out of you. Because God lives in you. His home is you. He dwells in you. You are a lantern. And the oil in you is the Holy Spirit. You're a habitation of God. That's why you can't drag him into places God wouldn't go. Got quiet on that one. Let's go belly up to the bar. Take Jesus with us. Now, he next becomes a habitation of God through the Spirit. For the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence in that person's body and quickens that person to life again. Hence, every born-again believer has two natures. Please understand this. You have two natures. You're not schizophrenic, but you have two natures. Ready? He has the old, unregenerate nature he was born with, called in Scripture, the flesh or the old man. And any time you let him, he'll rise up and take charge. Anytime you let him, you can lose your stack, scream and yell, have a bad temper tantrum. You can be filled with fear. You can get in the flesh and gossip and slander or whatever. That flesh is always ready to be released if you let him. That's why you've got to kill him. Good man. Kill that flesh. That's the only thing you've got the right to kill. Your flesh. Now, this nature, this flesh nature, can do nothing right. He also has the new nature, the divine nature, wrought in him by the Holy Spirit. And these two natures are at war. How many of you know that's true? <clears throat> they are at war. When a believer allows the old flesh nature to have its way in his life, he is a carnal man, carnal Christian. You can be as saved as the day is long and walk in the flesh. Be carnal, immature, fleshly. Paul said, I would have shared with you deeper things. He said to the Corinthians, but you are yet carnal. You are yet carnal. When a believer allows that old flesh nature to have its way in his life, he is a carnal man or a carnal woman. <clears throat> the, <clears throat> excuse me, the carnal man is vividly described in Romans 7, 15 through 25. You can read that whenever you want to. But when we allow the indwelling Holy Spirit to have His way in our life, we are a spiritual man or woman. Now let me ask you, which one do you want to be? Spiritual. Carnal Christians fight, 
devour one another, gossip. You can't tell much difference between them and the world. But spiritual Christians shine. They are distinct. They stand out. They glorify God. They bring forth fruit. They are totally different. It all comes down to what have you decided to walk in, the flesh or the spirit? It's a choice every morning. Have you ever noticed you can walk in the spirit one day and in the flesh the next? Or you can start out your day in the spirit and end up in the flesh? Or start out, start out your day in the flesh and end up in the spirit? Have you noticed you can have a great prayer meeting, get in your car and get in rush hour traffic and... Uh, my flesh is always saying, come on, let me out, come on, right then. But no, the spiritual man or woman learn to practice the presence of God. They live in the Word, they live in prayer, and they have learned that when the flesh wants to rise up, by the power of the Spirit, they put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's easy to see that Paul's command in verse 16 is a command to return to the way God originally meant for us to be, repositories of his glory. Isn't that right? Let me ask you a question. Which do you think most of the American or Western church lives in, the flesh or the spirit? Look at that immediately. Why don't we live in the spirit? Because it takes discipline, it takes work, it takes determination, it takes trial and, and, and failure, and it, it's not easy because you've got to crucify yourself, your own desires, not my will, Lord, but thine be done in every area of my life. We don't like being crucified. But on the other side of crucifixion of the flesh is life and peace and joy. God originally intended for us to be controlled by His Spirit, walking in His presence, and exhibiting God to the world. It all becomes a matter of obedience, of yielding to the Spirit. Now, in closing, let's stand together, and I want to read this uh, together. Read it with me. And next week, we're going to talk about the fruits of the Spirit and the works of the flesh. And it's good stuff. Don't miss it. But let's read now. Are you ready? For the flesh and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so you do not do the things that you wish. Let's pray. Father, we have seen the way it really is tonight. We can walk in the flesh or we can walk in the spirit. If we walk in the flesh, we're going to reap corruption. If we walk in the Spirit, we're going to reap life everlasting. Father, as your church, we ask you to help us to live in the Spirit of God. Can we just lift our hands to him for a minute? Now, I don't believe there's a person in here who wants to be a carnal Christian. But we want to walk in the Spirit and glorify God and be his repositories of life. So can you lift up a prayer to him and say, Lord, teach me to die to self, to live unto God, 
to kill the manifestations of the flesh by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name. Now, I believe the Lord wants to just speak to our hearts for a moment because some of you have been struggling with an area of your life that is in the flesh and you are almost at your wit's end because you seem to keep losing. I believe the Lord wants to give you a spirit, a word of encouragement and the spirit of his power. I believe he wants to speak to you and say, by my spirit, you can do it and go from victory to victory and faith to faith. I want you to let him speak to you for a moment. He's greater in you than he that is in the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Give him your weakness in the flesh. Say, Lord, help me to walk in the Holy Ghost. Walk in the Spirit of God. Thank you, Lord.